Let's pray. Uh, Father, we I pray, God, that you might minister to us in this time. In fact, uh, God, maybe just in the quiet of our own hearts, God, we just want to open ourselves up to you. God, any burdens we're carrying right now, we just uh, cast at your feet. As uh, Danielle mentioned, it is uh, Palm Sunday uh, today, a week before Resurrection Sunday, a week before Easter Sunday. This is also known as Passion Sunday. In fact, this whole week is known in some of the church as Passion Week. And uh, leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, known as the Passion of the Christ. If you remember Mel Gibson's movie of the crucifixion of Jesus was called The Passion of the Christ. And sometimes people wonder, oh, why is it called Passion Sunday or Passion Week? Or why is his crucifixion called the Passion? Because that's a little odd. And the reason is, is because the word passion, which comes from a Greek and uh, Latin similar words, used to mean suffering. And sometimes language changes over time, and now it's more about uh, emotion. But it had to do with his suffering. So this is the week leading up to his suffering and his resurrection. And so as we're leading up to Easter, we're going to focus in on a scene of the judgment of Jesus. And then coming up Friday here at 3 o'clock, and we do a Good Friday service at 3, because that is the, the exact hour that Jesus uh, gave up his spirit on the cross and cried, it is finished. It was at 3 p.m. And so we meet here from 3 to 4 and, uh, and uh, take quite a, a, an emotional look at the horror and suffering of the crucifixion, which just gets us ready for the excitement of Easter Sunday next week. And so we're going to talk today about Jesus, religion, and politics uh, from this text. And, uh, and this is the scene that's painted. This is after Jesus has been arrested in the garden. Judas has betrayed him. He's been captured by the religious leaders. He's been taken to trial by the religious leaders. And they've they had all these false, uh, false witnesses come forward, trying to find a way to, uh, uh, to find a way that he'd be worthy of death. And finally, they figure out something. So now uh, they bring Jesus to the Roman governor Pilate because uh, Jerusalem at the time was under Roman occupation. And while the Jews still had a lot of rules themselves, there was one rule that they could not do, and that was capital punishment. So they could not kill Jesus on their own. They had to bring him to the Roman governor and try to convince him that he is worthy of death. And so now they've brought Jesus to the Roman governor, and this is where we pick up the story in Matthew 27. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. And Jesus was actually just a common name back in those days. A lot of people were named Jesus. And so here we have Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Uh, Pilate was a smart guy in some ways. He, he knew that the Jews had brought Jesus to them out of self-interest. He, he knew that he was not worthy of crucifixion, of death. And so he's try, he kind of he figures Jesus is innocent. And he, he's trying to find a way to get Jesus free. And so he figures maybe the easiest way is to take a 
Barabbas and Jesus and get the crowd to pick which one. Maybe some of them don't like Jesus, but they really probably don't like Barabbas, so they're going to choose Jesus, and I can get them free. Because they know of Barabbas that he wasn't really the nicest guy. Uh, John 18 said that Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Luke 29 said Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. I mean, Barabbas was a murderer. Uh, and he was headed to crucifixion. Uh, and so Pilate brings up these two as a way to kind of bless the people to win approval for his government uh, in those days, was going to release one of them. And so when Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. And so while this is going on, and his wife says, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And so God gave Pilate's wife a dream. And we don't know what exactly this dream was, but somehow she figured out that this Jesus guy was innocent and Pilate should not have anything to do with his condemnation. And his wife tells Pilate. And uh, like a good husband, he should have listened to his wife. And like a bad husband, he didn't. Uh, but uh, church tradition actually says that Pilate's wife became a Christian. Mentioned by some of the early church fathers. In fact, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, she's actually a saint. Now we're all saints, but the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox have these saint saints. Um, saint Claudia Procula is uh, her name. And so tradition is that she, through this dream, came to, to Jesus and through the whole death and resurrection. And it's interesting how Jesus uh, speaks through dreams. And he still does that today. In fact, in, especially in the... A world dominated by uh, Islam in some countries where Christianity is, is mostly or totally illegal, uh, God does a lot of ministering through dreams. And a lot of people will come to uh, know Jesus through dreams. In fact, I heard a pastor from Egypt talking about how their church, one of the things that they do often is they carry out acts of love in their community, but they also pray that God would release dreams upon uh, the people who don't follow Jesus. Because they see that one of the most common ways that people come to know Jesus is that God gives them dreams and they, they, they want to figure out more about this Jesus. And so they go find a church or find a Christian to hear more. And so here we see in the midst of this God speaking uh, to Pilate's wife. Sadly, Pilate doesn't really listen in the end. Uh, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. So there's a choice. And the religious leaders who were probably the dominant people in the crowd, along with their friends, and those who lived in Jerusalem would have been there, uh, persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas rather than Jesus. And, and sometimes the question is asked, well, how is this possible? Because on Palm Sunday, everybody shouts, you know, Jesus is riding in with palm branches, and everybody's shouting, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who's come in the name of the Lord. How could this crowd go from that to crucify him? And there's, there's a couple different reasons. One is that this is, this is a scene of kind of a court setting. You have Pilate, the governor, who's got a lot of power. You have religious leaders who have tremendous power in their community. They're persuading. And that day, you didn't go against your religious leaders because they could excommunicate you and your family from the synagogue or cause trouble for you. And so you wouldn't really want to speak up. But one of the other big reasons is Jesus actually wasn't that well-known in Jerusalem. He did most of his ministry in Galilee, and as he was coming into, Gal into Jerusalem, he would have been with the masses from Galilee coming to the Passover. 
And it would have been primarily Galileans who were shouting Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is more the Jerusalem crowd under the fear and intimidation of the religious leaders. And so they convinced the crowd to ask for Barabbas. So again, uh, which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Uh, What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead that an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he handed, uh, had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And this Friday at 3, we're going to focus in on uh, that text there. But here we see in this scene uh, basically three kingdoms at work, three different spirits at work, three different kind of attitudes or mindsets. We see uh, the religious mindset or the religious spirit at work. Uh, we see the, the political mindset or the political spirit at work in Pilate. And we see the kingdom of God at work in Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Now I want to uh, compare and contrast these a little bit uh, today. First, to look at the political spirit as seen in Pilate. You can define the political spirit or political mindset. It can be either. This can be something coming from our old attitude. This can be also a, a spirit, uh, an, uh, a demonic spirit that is tempting us to think this way and act this way. Uh, it quickly distances oneself from anything that might, lec- uh, l- might make them look bad and puts the blame on someone else. It, it's all about self-protection. It's all about looking good in front of people. It's about preserving image at all costs as the political spirit. And we see this in Pilate. For we see that Pilate clearly sees that Jesus is not deserving of death, uh, that he is innocent. We see in Matthew 27... Uh, when they answered, crucify him, Pilate says, why, what crime has he committed? Luke 23, Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt, deserving death. And even Acts 3 says, you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. And Pilate sees the innocence of Jesus. He, he sees that, that Jesus does not deserve to be crucified. And he's actually trying to, to get him free. This is why he offers Jesus and Barabbas. But the crowd is putting pressure on him. And he is in uh, kind of a difficult situation. Because his role as the governor is to impose Roman rule. But at the same time, not make it too much for the people all rebel. He's also charged to keeping the peace. And he's made some big mistakes in this when he first came in. He came in and plastered Jerusalem with images of Caesar. And he minted all these pagan coins. And this caused uh, a lot of rioting. And, and, and uh, he almost lost his position over this because he couldn't keep the peace. And so he's trying to maintain his position. And here he's in this, this situation. And he's being pushed. John 19 says, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And so the Jewish leaders are pushing Pilate. You need to impose Roman rule. And this guy calls himself a king, so you need to obey Caesar. And then it also mentions here that an uproar was starting. He's about to lose the peace. He's in a a hard situation. Uh, He could lose his job over this. Uh, 
And so what does he do? Does he do what he thinks is morally right at cost to himself, at cost to his position, at cost to his image? No, he, he falls under the power of the political spirit, of the political mindset. He decides that, yeah, I will have Jesus crucified even though he is innocent so I can keep my position and keep my job. We see that the political spirit uh, gets life from pleasing people. Uh, the political spirit, again, quickly distances oneself from anything that might make them look bad and puts the blame on someone else. It puts self-interest above truly uh, loving others. And this is what Pilate does. Remember what he does? He washes his hands and says, it's your responsibility. When really, he had the power to let him go. Uh, in reality, he is the one who could set him free, but he quickly puts the blame on someone else so he can feel good about himself and maintain his image. This is the political spirit. And this happens to us at times, too, where we will choose to do something, even though it's morally wrong, so that we might maintain our image in front of people. Because we're more worried about our position and looking good and pleasing people because we get life from, from others and our status and our positions that we cause ourselves to actually rebel against Jesus. And we need to be people who do what is right. We need to be people who are willing to expose our position and even lose our job if necessary for doing what is right. There's, there's a brilliant story in uh, Tim Keller's book, uh, Every Good Endeavor. And this is in the Manhattan business world. He tells the story of this woman who just who finally gets into this, this business position and she makes a big mistake. And she knows she's going to lose her job. But her manager takes all the blame for her mistake. At cost to his own self, at cost to, to his position in, 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 in the business. And she is so shocked because she's like, this never happens. Usually everybody always passes the blame and never takes the blame. And he took the blame for something he didn't even do. And so she goes in there and, and says to this manager, why in the world did you do that? I've never seen that before. And he does this quick prayer because he's a Christian. And uh, he decides just to say it as it is. And he says, well, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. And Jesus took all the blame for my sin at cost to himself, so I'm okay doing the same. And you know what she says? She goes, hey, where do you go to church? I want to come. I mean, <laughs> this, we should not be afraid of taking blame. If, if we have messed up, we've done something to be willing to take the blame. Uh, we don't want to fall into this political spirit that's always distancing ourselves at all costs to, to whatever and putting the blame. And, and our governments do this at times. You know, they make a mistake or someone makes a mistake, they quickly find someone to blame and have them fired because it was really all their fault. So they can maintain their image and they can look good in front of people. This is Pilate. We need to be careful of this political spirit. But then we see the religious spirit at work here as well in the religious leaders. It says in Matthew 26, the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. And they, they wanted to get him from almost the beginning. Because Jesus was a threat to their system of religious rules. And the religious spirit or the religious mindset is all about trying to, to earn our righteousness from God by rule following. It's more about condemning and judging other people rather than giving grace and love. Uh, in Matthew 27, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. They felt Jesus was such a threat that they were willing to get even false evidence towards having him, him uh, put, to, put to death. And we see a few reasons why. For one, 
Jesus challenged their traditions. And religious people who uh, get caught up in this religious spirit, this religious mindset, they just focus in on the rules at expense of love. Rules become more important than actually loving people. Where Jesus came in and said the highest principle is love, even if sometimes you have to bend the rules. And we see here on, in Mark chapter 3, uh, Jesus, this is Jesus on the Sabbath. Uh, uh, then Jesus asked them, this is the religious leaders, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, but they remained silent. He looked at, around them uh, in anger because he sees their hard hearts, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and said to this man who's crippled, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, this other political party, how they might kill Jesus. Jesus just healed somebody, and they respond by, I want to kill him. Is this what the, 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 the corruption and the, the deception of the religious spirit can do in people? They get so attached to their man-made rules that they can no longer love. And if anybody challenges their man-made rules because they're incapable of loving, they condemn and judge and will kill uh, because of it. We see that the religious spirit also always, always trying to distance itself from anything that might interfere with their righteousness. Uh, the Pharisees and tax collectors would, uh, or the religious leaders, uh, would never be caught hanging out with a tax collector or a prostitute or a sinner. Because in their mind, that they're going to infect me and I need to maintain my righteousness. They might interfere with my rule keeping. Jesus comes along and does the exact, exact opposite. And again, this ticks them off. Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, because those under this trap of religion are all about sacrifice and rules, and traditions, and it's my way, and anything that's not this way, can't do. So they're, again, they're blind to love and blind to mercy. In fact, uh, they can become so blind that they're unable to actually see their own sin. And it's one of the most dangerous traps of the religious spirit, of the religious mindset. It causes people to be so focused on putting others down because they get their life from feeling better than others, they get so focused on judging and condemning that they no longer able, are able to see their own sin. So much so that it is amazing, <laughs> these texts. In Matthew 12, uh, the Pharisees said this. Uh, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. In other words, they thought Jesus was demon-possessed. They thought Je Jesus was like demonic. Now, what was really going on? Jesus tells us, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry your father's earth. It was actually them, the religious leaders who were filled with the devil. But they were so blind to their own sin and their own failing that all they could do is point the blame at everybody else, and everybody else is the problem, and I'm totally fine, and I'm perfect, because, they need to, because if you get your life from rule following, then you don't, never want to admit you make a mistake. Because all of a sudden, your righteous status falls apart. And if your righteous status is built on, on rules, then you can't admit, you cannot look within your own heart to the place where these people were saying that is demonic when really they themselves were demonic. This is the religious spirit. The religious spirit gets life from rule following and being right. 
uh, condemns and judges people so that they feel superior. Because again, if you get your life from looking better and trying to earn your own righteousness, you better think you're better than other people. And one way you do that is to judge and condemn people without looking at yourself. It thinks it needs to earn a position before God. It judges and condemns anyone they think is inferior. And it distances itself from people in order to maintain their own righteousness. And again, this, like the political spirit, a political mindset, can, can affect us. Uh, I mean, sometimes this is why Christians are sadly known as, sometimes in the world, as the people who are the most judgmental. Because sometimes we fall in this religious thing. We're more about judging, condemning, than actually loving people and giving grace like Jesus. Uh, we can be blind to our own sin when we fail to really believe the gospel. And all of a sudden, we can put the blame on our spouse. We can put the blame on other people in church. We can put the blame everywhere else except for our own heart because we're incapable of seeing our own sin because we're so caught up in trying to maintain this image and righteousness before God. Jesus in Mark 8 said this, Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Uh, yeast in the Bible is often, not always, but often uh, used of evil. And how you can take yeast and put it in dough and how it spreads throughout the loaf and, and it kind of puffs up. That yeast is often used in the Bible to describe how evil can spread within a group or within someone's personal life. Um, we see in, in 1 Corinthians, for instance, it says, Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. And so Jesus says that we've got to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. This is the religious mindset, the religious spirit, and the political mindset and the political spirit. We've got to watch out for those. Because so subtly they can creep into a church uh, when leaders become more uh, concerned about image than actually being able to admit, admit mistakes and take advice from others. That'll corrupt a marriage. That'll corrupt a church just like that. Corrupt a business. We've got to watch out for the, uh, the yeast of, of those things in, 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 in our lives. What Jesus said, be careful that we are watching out for those things. Even some of the best fall into this trap. Remember King David? He falls into both of these. Uh, King David, when, when his men were off to battle, this is the familiar story with Bathsheba. He's up on the rooftop looking down, and he sees this naked woman uh, who's, who's probably beautiful in this tub. And because he's a king, he can do whatever he wants. And so he commands for this woman to come up to his palace and, and she can't say no because this is the king and in those days women didn't have any power but thankful to Jesus he, cha he changed that uh, so he has sex with her and she becomes pregnant uh oh he's a political leader and he, he, his image is going to be tainted because he just had uh, got someone pregnant who's not his wife and so what is he going to do is he going to do the right thing or is he going to fall under the political spirit, which distances itself from any problem and always puts the blame on somewhere else? But that's exactly what he does. He tries to distance himself by the problem. If you remember the story, he, he invites Uriah home, that's the husband, hoping that he's going to come home and go sleep with his wife and they'll think it's their baby, or he will think it's uh, his baby, but he doesn't. He's so faithful to his men that he stays at the palace and doesn't sleep with his wife. And the next night, David gets even more extreme. Because if you fall under the, the political spirit, you will do whatever it takes to maintain your image. You will lie, you will cheat, 
You will do whatever it takes because that's the religious spirit. He gets Uriah drunk. So drunk that he's always going to go home and have sex with his wife, but he still doesn't. And then finally, he puts in this order. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. That's the military leader. And sent it actually with Uriah himself, his own death sentence. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. That's what happened. He, Uriah is killed. Whew. Got rid of the problem. I still look good. I still got my image. I still got my job. What a wonderful life. That's the political spirit. He just killed somebody. And we do that. The political spirit will kill a marriage, will kill a church, but I still got my image. I'm okay. I mean, this is what happens. And, and then, of course, he falls right into the religious trap. Because not long after this, because God sees this. God sees all. He knows what's going on in our hearts. God comes along and gets the prophet Nathan to come along, and Nathan's going to go confront David. But David knows what, uh, Nathan the prophet knows what the religious spirit does. It'll blind someone to their own sin. So Nathan can't just come and say, David, you sinned. You really mess up because the religious spirit doesn't see that. The religious spirit sees everybody else's sin, but not their own. Blames it on everybody else, but not their own. So he tells a little story, if you remember, about the sheep. Uh, this rich man had all these sheep and lambs, or, and uh, he's lots of money. And then there's this poor guy who's got one little baby lamb and one little sheep. And the rich guy has some people come over, and he needs dinner. He doesn't take one of his thousand lambs he goes and takes the only little lamb from the poor guy which was like a pet to him and he takes it and eats that lamb and David of course gets mad David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan as surely as the Lord lives the man who did this must die he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity I think Jesus said something about this first take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck. But this is what happens when you're under the religious mindset, the religious spirit. You quickly judge, you could uh, quickly condemn, but you cannot see your own sin. And then we know what David does. He drops the line, the, the famous line, Nathan said to David, you are that man. And all of a sudden he hits him. It's me. I made a mistake. And he confesses. And this is the only way you can get out of the religious spirit or the, the, the political spirit is to confess and to be honest and to be open with people around you. You can never, if you just, and here's what happened. This is another twist of the religious and the political spirit is, I will just try to deal with this with God. That often is actually a sign of pride. Because I'm too proud to tell anybody else, me and God are going to figure this out and we're going to keep it a secret just between me and God. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And sometimes people are working on things with God, and they're like, why isn't this working? It's because you are full of pride, because you're keeping this within, and you're not humbling yourself and confessing your sin to one another and being like a normal human being. And so we are to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of, of Herod. And then third, we see in this mix, we got the political spirit, the political mindset, and the religious spirit, the religious mindset, and then we have Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, who is totally working in the entire, uh, entirely different direction than the religious and the political people. Again, the political spirit quickly distances itself from anything that might make it look bad and puts all the blame on someone else. But Jesus does the exact opposite. He actually draws near to sinners. He allows himself to look bad in order to give life to sinners. He's doing this exact opposite. Political people are all about keeping their image. 
I'll distance myself from that because that's going to make me look bad so I can be full of life. Jesus is like, I'm going to draw near to those people who are messed up. And I'm going to make myself look really bad. He dies like the most extreme criminal, the ugliest, most pathetic death you could ever do, so that he might give life to people. Uh, and we are called to follow in this, these footsteps. Uh, we see Jesus coming down. The word became flesh. He comes down to sinners. We see he humbles himself on a cross. And while we are still sinners, Christ dies for us. He does the very opposite of the religious spirit. And we're called to be like this. In fact, the whole picture of Barabbas and, and Jesus becomes a picture of the gospel in this story. Because, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, he was between two thieves. Guess who the cross Jesus was on was supposed to be for? That was Barabbas' cross. But what does Jesus do? He takes his place. I mean, Barabbas was expecting to be crucified uh, on, on that Friday. And, and he's expecting to be crucified the next day. And he's sitting here, I'm going to die. There's no hope for me. I'm miserable. I messed up or whatever. And here comes Jesus. And all of a sudden they hear them shouting Jesus or uh, shouting Barabbas. And all of a sudden he's free. This is what Jesus has done for us. I mean, the fact is we are Barabbas. Jesus took our place. He didn't run for us to keep his image. He lost his image. He lost his reputation to, in order to actually save us. And then, of course, we see Jesus acting opposite to religion. Uh, religion says you need to earn your way to God. You need to, to put others down and build yourself up because you need to feel superior. And you better not look within your own heart because if you see junk in there, you're not going to feel all religious and righteous. And that's not going to be good for your relationship with us. You hide what's in and just judge and condemn. Jesus came and brings, brings the gospel, which reminds us we don't have to work for our salvation anymore. There's such a big difference between religion and the gospel. Religion is all about do, do, do. The gospel says it's finished. Religion is about what I have to do. The gospel is about what I get to do. Religion says you need to work for forgiveness. The gospel says you are forgiven. Religion says God will love you if... The gospel says God loves you now. Religion says you should be motivated by fear. The gospel says you should be motivated by love. Religion, religion focuses on what I am doing. The gospel focuses on what Jesus did and is doing. Religion sees hardship in life as punishment from God. The gospel sees that God works all things for good. Religion condemns and criticizes. The gospel gives life and life to the full. Religion tries to get life from rule following. The gospel uh, gets, I should say, life through Jesus. Religion says I need to earn my position before God. The gospel says your position before God is a gift. Religion says you should trust in yourself. The gospel says you should trust Jesus. Religion is about what I have to do. The gospel is about what I get to do. Religion is about me. The gospel is about Jesus. Religion ends in either pride or despair because either you're going to be full of pride because I'm doing so much better than everybody else. Like I'm, the, I'm the, the, the example of everybody. We're just like me. I'm so full of pride. Or despair. I can't do it. I can't live up to all these standards. I can't live up to uh, you just You end up in despair. That's religion. The gospel ends in humble and confident joy because the power of the resurrected Jesus is at work in me. This is what we're to walk in. We are to be walking in the gospel, spreading the gospel, not religion, not politics, but
but the kingdom of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a picture of a new way of life. God, you've given us a picture of a life that's not about religion, it's not about politics, but it's about following your son, Jesus. And I pray, God, you'd help us to make our lives about Jesus. And God, we pray against the work of the religious spirit and the political spirit in our lives and in our midst in this community. God, in our marriages and our relationships. God, we ask that you would free us in Jesus' name. God, that you'd fill us with the Holy Spirit. God, that you would give us a keen sense of wisdom and a keen mind, God, to walk as Jesus walked in this world. To pass on grace, to pass on love, to live in the truth, to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, and to make life about Jesus. We pray this in his name.